0: High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaac1.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for Naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a tender conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Oneet Lev. Tender as in bud tender. What does it take to be a bud tender? Probably, as in any sales job, communication skills are the most important. But what if you wanted training? I looked it up. You can get a Master's of Cannabis Certificate for only 2 dollars Deal expires in 10 hours, 11 minutes, and 9 seconds from, who guessed it, the Cannabis Training University. You can get it all done in 7 days. My medical training, to compare, cost me more than two ninety-nine. Took me four years of college, four years of medical school, and four years of residency. After 12 years, I had to take oral boards and written boards. And then every year, I have to take a minimum 20 hours of continuing medical education. And every 10 years, I have to retake my board exam. That's a lot. Even lawyers don't have to take the bar again every 10 years. At 50 years old... I remember taking my emergency medicine boards for the fourth time. And after the exam, I went, parked my car near a grocery store, and cried for like an hour. I cried, not because I thought I failed. I passed. I cried because I knew that in the future, in 10 years from now, when I was 60 years old, I would have to go through that ordeal again memorizing a bunch of crap I knew I didn't need to know, taking time away from my family, my friends, and whatever years left I had of my life to study. The public can choose to trust a bud tender who has a 299 master's certificate, or you can trust doctors like me and my colleagues at Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. The doctors and scientists at Isaac have many years of experience in clinical practice, science, research, and pharmacology. This brain trust has published books and scientific publications on cannabis. I don't think the bud tenders are qualified to check your prescription medications for drug interactions with THC or CBD or ask you if you are immunocompromised and should avoid smoking cannabis known to have fungal contaminants. I doubt they ask about mental health or warn about psychosis and suicide. I don't think the Masters in Cannabis Certificate includes education from the American Heart Association about the risk of heart attacks or strokes, or information from the American Lung Association on the risk of smoking or vaping anything into your lungs. What about risk for testicular cancer or epigenetic weed whacking that THC does to sperm? Is there warning about not procreating? while using weed. It is impossible to include all the risks of cannabis in one podcast. Even I have a hard time keeping up with a growing body of medical literature on the harms of THC. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Thank you Dr. Lev for your podcast and presentation at the fourth annual Stanford Teaching Cannabis Awareness and Prevention Conference. Your session received great reviews. My name is Natalie Andrade and I work for the Tobacco Use Prevention Education Program at Santa Clara County Office of Education. I work with youth who um, use substances such as tobacco and cannabis. Um, My question is whether marijuana grown in The backyard is safer than in a store because it is considered more natural. Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. And for the great job that you did as moderator at the Stanford fourth annual Teaching Cannabis Awareness and Prevention Conference. You moderated my session and uh, did polling questions and handled that and prepped me in a really great way. So thank you so much. To answer your question, I have Anne Hassel. Anne Hassel is a reformed bud tender turned prevention advocate. She was a true marijuana believer, leaving her job as a physical therapist to enter the green rush in a Massachusetts medical marijuana dispensary. Then she developed heavy metal poisoning, cannabis use disorder, and even cannabis-induced psychosis. She now is reformed and joins the prevention movement to educate others on the harms of high THC content and contaminants. Anne has testified before national and state authorities and politicians. She appears in the film Smokescreen and Dr. Kevin Sabet's book, Smokescreen What the Marijuana Industry Doesn't Want You to Know. To learn more about Anne Hassel, check out the High Truth show notes. Anne Hassel, welcome to High Truths. Thank you, Dr. Liv, for having me on. I'm I'm so excited for this conversation. I want to take our you know time together to go through your life in a way to analyze um, the issue of marijuana because I think that you're a, a living example of that. Um, so we'll, we'll go through your life as a lover of marijuana, an industry worker, bud tender, an injured worker, and then a preventionist. So at the beginning, you became to love marijuana. How old were you? How did that come about?
1: I still remember I was about 16 years old and I was very awkward in high school. I felt like I didn't fit in and I had a very dysfunctional family. So I remember I met a girl who became my best friend and I started consuming, smoking marijuana. And actually I started smoking with her and her mother. So it was very acceptable. I remember not feeling much the first time but after that i really felt really good felt like all my problems of life just melted away and i just really started consuming more and more marijuana at that point it was in the uh, it was in the 1980s and probably just about 2% thc which i again thought there was no problem with it that it was something that really was therapeutic and beneficial for me i yeah. later went on to go to college, and marijuana was very expensive, and it was hard to come by. There were some circumstances where I was trying to acquire it, and it wasn't the best thing. You know actually, I did have some my life and safety was at risk. So I decided to grow my own with my boyfriend. And in Virginia, the height of the war on drugs, I got arrested because I was growing marijuana in a closet, and I was facing at that time a five-year minimum to 25 years. And I came close to getting the five years. I ended up just serving a month in jail. And I thought the government had it all wrong. I I felt really resentful that I was prosecuted and handcuffed, incarcerated. And when I came out, well, I actually was on probation for a year. I did not consume marijuana. So at that time, I, you know, had monitored testing I did not consume it. And I kept longing, Dr. Lev, for when I could start consuming it again. It was so, so much a part of my life. So you were and... still a,
0: you still were addicted and craving. It's not like being drug free. You got your brain back to think clearly.
1: I didn't actually. If anything, again, it, it made me even more uh, resentful of the government. I thought that, again, scientists like yourself were completely wrong. I again, That's the thing about marijuana. It's a very addictive drug and people don't seem to understand. I think with other drugs like opioids or methamphetamine, people understand the harm, but they don't understand it with marijuana. So I came out of, at that time, uh, my probation. I graduated from college, moved up where the boyfriend who had fled the state I met him in Boston and started consuming. And I remember the first time, this was very strong weed by about 1990, probably about 5% THC. And I remember when I smoked it, I didn't have a good reaction at all. I thought I was like on an acid trip. And I had to lie down and I was really upset about it. I I couldn't understand where I had wanted what I thought marijuana was for me, a, a nice calming influence. And I just felt so terrible. And I remember people said, don't worry, Ann, you'll get used to it. Well, unfortunately, I did and began consuming it in the 1990s and later went to grow even more the first time in the 1980s i was not successful i got arrested but then later in the 1990s i was doing a small scale grow operation
0: so you're growing your own weed um, when you're in college and then after you graduated college did the plant change is it a different weed, different genetic uh, strain
1: very much so. Again, I told you in the 1980s, it was probably 2% THC. By the time the 90s were coming around, what happened was there were Amsterdam seed banks that were getting a lot of strains from Northern California, and they were actually hybridizing the plant, increasing the THC and decreasing the cannabidiol, which counteracts the psychoactive effect. All I knew is that I actually did want to get the strains in the highest THC, which actually is what most people are doing right now. Right.
0: So interesting. So then you graduated college, you became a physical therapist.
1: Yes, I did become a physical therapist. I left like the whole thing of growing marijuana, but I still did use it from time to time. But it was my dream job. I thought I was such an expert at it. I, again, was so familiar with the growing process. I had done multiple grows. I've done hydroponic, outdoor. Uh, different grows. And it was my dream to be in the industry. Again, I think part of me was so stigmatized by my arrest and incarceration that I thought that I was vindicated when in uh, 2012, medical marijuana was legalized in Massachusetts. And I had to wait until 2015 until uh, a dispensary was opening near me. And I applied for that job in 2015. What was the job? I was a registered marijuana dispensary agent, otherwise known as a bud tender. And I'm the person at the counter who would recommend strains for people. Uh, Again, I actually had been a physical therapist, so I thought this is perfect. I'm a physical therapist. I've seen how certain medications don't work for people. I thought marijuana worked for me, and I thought this is great. I can actually use the medical knowledge I have to go into this industry to improve, uh, you know, the health health and uh, decrease the pain of, for people. So
0: physical therapy is, you know, natural healing. You thought, you know, marijuana, a plant is natural healing. Um, and you, you left, uh, you know, a nice profession, physical therapy, to do this. Um, did it pay? I mean, did you as much money?
1: Uh, well everyone especially my mother they were not happy with this they thought i what are you doing Anne? you're i was earning like you know 50 an hour willing to go down to 15 i saw it as being on the ground floor to something great where i was going to do very well i was looking forward to uh th- being on the ground floor and if i wasn't going to be going through whatever corporation i wanted to be a cannabis physical therapist i was really thinking about that for a while um Were you offered, like,
0: share in this new company, or were you just a hired bud tender? Just
1: a hired hand. Uh, In a way, it was not what I expected. Let's just say that for now. Um, But I just was excited to take the pay cut and to work 12 to 16-hour days on my feet. And when I was at the bud tender counter the day we opened, because I helped open the store, people would come in with tears in their eyes. And I thought, oh, like I, I felt like it was almost a, a religious experience. This is my calling. I'm really good at this. And this is where I what I need to do in life. And I really didn't feel that uh, with other things I was involved in.
0: It's interesting you bring the religious analogy, because I feel that some people who have an addiction or love weed, it's their religion. You know, it'd be like saying, you know, you know, not believing in God or, you know, or paganism, you know, they believe in marijuana. Were you were you that person?
1: Absolutely, I was one of the most pro-marijuana people you could imagine. It gets to the point where it's normalized. You're hanging around people that use marijuana all the time, especially when I became a, a bud tender. It, you're working in the job. It, it, it's what you consider as your medicine, and then it's a social component of hanging out with these people, and because of accessibility. It was there all the time. And actually, we were actually pushed to consume the products. That's another uh, thing I did not anticipate. Interesting. And, and it, you know,
0: I, I would think that your first instincts of being on the ground floor of a new type of business and opportunity uh, for you at the time make sense. Like we just saw a recent report um, from this year that Americans spent more money on legal cannabis in 2022 than chocolate or beer. They spent $30
1: billion on marijuana and $20 billion on chocolate. That didn't surprise me. I know that I myself, I would get a very good discount, and I began, began consuming more and more. And so did I notice my coworkers and the, at that time, there were patients because I was at the medical marijuana dispensary. Everyone was consuming more and more. So tell us about that. So you were at a uh, the medical
0: dispensary. How, how is that different than the, you know, a recreational dispensary.
1: What was medical about it? Well, I mean, right now, looking back, it was not medical. And I, I realized I was duped like I believe the nation is duped. Because, again, it passed by the ballot measure in 2012. It became law, even though our politicians had gone out to Colorado and didn't like what it looked like. And they came back and warned you know, people about it. Uh, but it passed As for what the difference is, the only real difference right now between medical and recreational is the potency of the edibles. Otherwise, you have the same vape cartridges, you have the same high-potency THC concentrates, everything in the flour, again, the the strains can go up to 30% plus, the only difference is the edibles. Is there a price difference if you have a medical marijuana card? Do you get a discount uh, or is it more expensive or how does that? Work? Actually, in our state, they did mandate that you had to give a discount uh, because of people who are low income. And interesting enough, I and all the other bud tenders and staff would get that additional income and uh, get that discount because we were you know, relatively low income. You get you don't have to pay taxes. That's really the big difference across uh, the, the nation is that with medical, you don't pay the taxes and they can be significant. Right. So
0: it's cheaper if it's medical, but it's the same plant, right? It's not like there's a grow of medical grade that's, you know, Mm -hmm. has is more pure or has less contaminants or E. coli or aspergillus or fungus. And then here's
1: another one that's just recreational. It's the same stuff, right? It's the same thing. Actually, what I find interesting is that we'll get more into the contamination. But at my marijuana corporations cultivation center, the growers were upset about the quality. Again, you're talking about the mold and all the contaminants. And they were told by the HR director, you've seen behind the curtain, we were always meant for, for recreational. That just says it all. I felt like it was a big farce that medical was used as basically a facade to push through what they really wanted, which was the commercialized, industrialized marijuana industry. Interesting, and and how about at the
0: medical store? One thing I saw that you, you say differently is that you call uh, the customers patients, as if you're the doctor, as the bud tender, you call yes. them your patients. So that's one thing to make them feel like it's their medicine. You call them patients. Um, anything else like that? They made the store look like a you know a, a pharmacy or a doctor's office.
1: Well, it was interesting. They did have these really, it was kind of a hip store. Some people described it as the Apple store, you know, it had like wooden or teak counters and green lighting. And in the back there are these patient consult rooms and they really were patient consult rooms where you could have semi-privacy by closing the, the, uh, like a partition door. So you would actually, I was really into the patient consults. I took it very seriously. What I didn't realize is that later, again, it was a complete facade to bring through the commercialized industry is my coworkers. Instead of there were some EMTs, there was me, there was someone with a healthcare degree. Later on, they were hiring bartenders and, um, restaurant servers. And I would notice that, I would take it seriously and want to listen to the people and find out really what their issues are. And I would not want to really recommend a very strong strain for them right off, not for the inexperienced user, but I had some coworkers in their 20s and that's what they would do. Uh, They would go meet with these, you know, 80 year old women and have them buy the highest potency sativa imaginable because that's what they liked. Right. And then they would come up to my counter. Oh, this young man says I need to get this. And there wasn't much I could do. I would just dispense it. Were you ever to check about,
0: you know, drug interactions, other prescriptions or talk about drug driving or or pregnancy or lactation or heart health or lung health or anything else that a
1: real doctor would talk about? None of those things. If anything, we did have some pregnant bud tenders at one point in time. They really wanted to talk about how marijuana was helping them. Uh, mm-hmm. There is this Jamaican study from way back when I don't know how reliable it was saying that um, it was not harmful. I think it was in the 1970s, and uh, they we had some very pregnant women working there and dispensing it and recommending it. Wow. So, that's- so, what about the products? What
0: what were were you told? Okay, as a bud tender, were you told, "Hey, push this product, this flower, these items. We got these vapes. We need to offload." Or how how
1: did tell us a little bit about the the products? What are the hot items and but when we first opened, we had, again, the high-potency flower, maybe a few vape pens. We were always told to tell them they were very discreet. In other words, Dr. Liv, you can be token going down the street. People told me that they were at the counter. They they told me they were vaping at a funeral, right there in the funeral parlor. You know, it, it just seemed like everyone was basically consuming in a way that it wasn't meant to be medicinal, And then later, I I kept wondering, where's the CBD? Because that was the cannabidiol products. Those are the ones that are supposed to, you know, prevent, um, you know, seizures and other problems. And in fact, we didn't open with that. Our opening day. That was a farce too about seizures, right? Because, you know, the babies with
0: Dravet syndrome were not smoking pot, you know? (laughs)
1: exactly but you know we did have a young woman who was a uh, young um younger than 14 who was getting our cbd tincture apparently it didn't help her actually no excuse me it wasn't the cbd tincture it was the, the sativa tincture and i heard that did not help her well i'm not surprised why was this young person getting it's a not, sativa tincture what is sativa tincture is that thc well the sativa what happens is you have the cannabis plant and you basically have sativa which is more energetic and upbeat and then you have indica which is supposedly more mellow, but people can have paradoxal effects from it. And the fact is, is that the whole... They were giving THC think, to a 14-year-old girl? Absolutely. She could have been younger. She could have been 8 to 12. Isn't, I that, isn't that child abuse? No, because you have in Massachusetts two medical doctors who signed off on that. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, she decided or the parents decided it wasn't helping her. But I did sell high potency THC concentrates. What I didn't know going into it is that they take the cannabis plant and they strip the cannabinoids. So you have instead of any of the vegetative material, you have the uh, like a blob of a concentrate. It's it's known as oil, dab, wax. Where where does this happen?
0: So to take us through the growing process. So someone has a grow like you and where where does all
1: this take place? This Well, once you have harvested the raw plant, mm-hmm. you then take um well in my my corporation use propane and butane to strip the plant of the uh, to make the to make the concentrate. It's more like if you're distilling alcohol, you're taking again the uh, barley or whatever it is you're, you're growing, and then you're, you're, you're making it very strong. The same thing with marijuana. You're taking this plant that maybe it's 15% THC. You're stripping it with butane and propane. There are other methods, too, perhaps better. And then, in fact, it can be I was consuming 98% THC, and I had never consumed anything like that in my life before. So this all happens in a lab somewhere, right? Absolutely. Oh, well, People actually are blowing themselves up doing it. You can do it at home using, um, you can also use Everclear, which is an alcohol and simmer it on a stove. Or you can, again, you have to be careful because you can in fact have uh, an explosion. And there have been butane hash oil explosions in California. There was a really bad fire one time.
0: I think there's a video of a firefighter who was stoned from secondhand smoke, and you could see him uh, being interviewed. Um, but so, but for an industry, um, you know, they get the grows, um, they they buy it, they sell the plant, but they sell all these other uh, vapes and tinctures and stuff that happens in a lab, right? And that's where the butane and um, yes and terpenes and all other things uh, happen. Well, if
1: anything, I didn't. Uh, you get a higher price margin with the products if you make the concentrate and sell the concentrate because you then infuse edibles with it, lotions with it. Everything can be infused with the concentrate. You can have a high-end product cost, a lot higher than if you just got the raw flour. Some people would want to make their own, you know, concentrates. But by and large, the industry is making more money by making the concentrate. And also they get away with having moldy marijuana. Out in uh, Oregon, I read an article, blasting mold into green gold. So when they have these moldy plants, what they're doing is they're again, what I had seen in my corporation and why I stopped consuming the flower, I saw the mold on it. I trimmed the moldy marijuana at the plant, at the uh, cultivation center. And I thought, wow, I bet if I do the concentrate, it'll be healthier. They told me. The Colorado consultant who worked for our company said it was a more medicinal way to medicate. And I thought, wow, you're right. You know what? It won't be harsh because I was having adverse effects from consuming the, uh, the uh, moldy marijuana. And if anything, I didn't understand that it makes the my- myotoxins increase even more when you have contaminated marijuana. If you then are, are condensing it, you're making even more toxic. So at the medical
0: dispensaries, you know, if this was a pharmacy, dosing um, and product integrity, contamination is very important. What what were the dosing standards at the dispensary?
1: Well, the lowest edible potency we sold was 10 milligrams. And we told people, go low, go slow. That's what they're saying across the industry. I'll be reading a newspaper. Oh, they're saying, go low, go slow. But when you give someone a little tiny nugget, that's like, You know, little Tootsie Roll that's 100 milligrams. Well, people don't always go slow.
0: No, or they, they go and they go to the emergency department and I see them there. Absolutely. Um, My
1: friend was hospitalized. She told me she was consuming the 10 milligrams. It was a girl's night out with her her friends and they would consume the 10 milligram edible. No problem. Well, one time they consumed it. She went into seizures and she was doing the scrometing, which I think you coined that term, screaming and vomiting in the ER for eight hours. And she was lectured to you need to know what you're consuming. Um, She decided then and there not to go back to my corporation because I worked at the center. When I went to the cultivation center, I saw people, we were high in the dispensary dispensing the products. They're high in the cultivation center making the products. And they wrapped the 10 milligram and the 50 milligram and the 100 milligram with the same wax paper. And then someone just dumps it in the wrong bin. Wow.
0: So um, not reliable in dosing. Um, Contaminations, mold, you said you actually saw that. Um, I think you know there's a study from UC Davis that went to 20 legal dispensaries um, in California, bought the products, and hundred percent of them, all of them, uh, marijuana plants, uh, had contaminants, especially fungus or e. coli.
1: Um, and the illegal pesticides, I believe that was in California, I think 80% of them failed for the banned pesticides. And people need to understand, you can take a pesticide that you if you eat it, it's not as harmful like Michael butenol, But if you combust it, it becomes hydrogen cyanide. That's mustard gas. So, so let me ask you,
0: there are, uh, you know, I think more illegal grows in California than there are legal grows. And, and um, you know, I imagine it's a lucrative industry. Uh, I'm wondering if the legal uh, dispensaries throughout the United States, they buy their product from somewhere. What is the product integrity to make sure that that product wasn't bought by illegal grows versus
1: legal grows? Well, they supposedly have this seed, um, seed to sale tracking. I don't even know how reliable it is. From what I saw, there's a lot of deception. They're, they're, they're taking shortcuts. They just, all these corporations care about is money. And I don't think people understand just how industry driven this is. I have heard of other states. I know that they were transporting across the state lines. So I know it happens. I can't say it happened with my corporation, but Oh, actually, they did get the plants from Colorado. That I know for a fact. They got clones from Colorado. They were supposed to start in Massachusetts from seed. Remember I told you seed to sale? Well, yeah. apparently they got the clones from Colorado when they when they came in. They had that uh, horrible mold problem. And that's what caused the big mold issue. So they'll take shortcuts. Who's looking over their shoulder? They're policing themselves. How do, yeah, and that's the problem.
0: <laughs> the policing themselves, <laughs> even at the highest government Level, I could say in California, there's a, a Bureau of Cannabis Control, but they make sure that uh, there'll never be, you know, uh, real doctors or scientists or people who don't have a conflict of interest on those committees at the highest level. So, so it's really policing yourself. Um, but what if you are a concerned consumer and, you know, you want to, you know, try marijuana and you care about the environment um, and you don't want, you know, cyanide, uh, in your pot, is there, you know, the whole concept that you say seed to sale is very appealing. How do, is there a way to make sure, you know, like when we go to the store and I want to make sure that my, you know, tomatoes are organic, um, you know, or, or my eggs were, you know, you know, non-caged eggs or whatever, is
1: there a way for consumers to know that kind of stuff? There is no way in terms of organic, there's no way that you can ensure that that's just a label they like to put on. And I actually stopped consuming marijuana after everything I went through in terms of the physical and mental problems it caused me. So I can't really recommend to people what to do. now I have to say, if they decided, I know people that still grow their own. The thing is, if, especially if you get a clone, once a mother plant is in fact treated with pesticide, then the clones have the pesticide in it. So there've been people in California, they're like, oh, I'm I'm a caring cannabis, small, like local company. I'm gonna get these clones and I'm gonna grow them and then they'll do it and they won't use any harmful things. And then when they test it, it fails for pesticides Mm -hmm. because it all comes back to where did they get that original plant from?
0: So Natalie Andrade is a prevention worker. She works with youth And she works with kids who have used marijuana. And she gets asked often, what if I grow the plant on myself, you know, myself, like kind of you did at the beginning um, of your uh, love for marijuana? Uh, Is it safer than buying it at a dispensary?
1: I think it probably would be safer, but I'm coming from the angle, and it took a long time for me to get there, Dr. Lev, because I really wanted... I thought that the first problem was the corporate marijuana. And then I figured out, you know, it was the high THC was a the problem. Then I realized that THC itself is something that is fraught, again, with health hazards to consume. So, again, I, I don't consume it now and would not recommend young people consume it. After right. what I know about the thing is, I stopped consuming it because I was alerting the state. And when I stopped consuming it, I later... Read the scientific literature about it, and that was—I didn't believe it. I—I I believed that all that was was fake government propaganda uh, about the the you know the addiction. I thought it wasn't addicting at all, right. and I didn't think it was harmful. And then I know in California they say that uh, cannabis is a carcinogen in terms of smoking. They've admitted that. So why don't people need to understand that even if you grow your own plant and you're still smoking it, it's carcinogenic. It's still
0: not healthy. Um, yes you stopped because you got sick let's let's talk about that part of your life when uh when you had some type of aha moment uh, Is because you developed symptoms what were your first symptoms that you first first noticed when you realized this
1: is um uh, not my religion or maybe it's a problem what what well the first thing I had was when I noticed the buds again they were moldy and I was having um respiratory problems, uh, allergies, and so was, were people in my dispensary. We would have morning meetings and someone shared that their tongue went numb after consuming the flour and that it wasn't flushed right. So not only did I have growing experience. But so did most of the people at the dispensary. That's when I again shifted over to the concentrates because I thought, okay, that's embarrassing to admit now. Here I was sold, selling moldy products that were harmful, but I was consuming the concentrates. And that's when I started having neurological problems. Uh, I started to have abdominal bloating. I developed a severe cannabis use disorder that I at that time didn't know I had a cannabis dis- uh, use disorder and also developed psychosis. I started to, to dab, I would take the uh, the butane torch and the dab rig and do it. That's kind of the hardcore way to do it, not just a vape pen, but to get the huge effect. You do a, a dab and I would get to the point where my eyes would roll up in the back of my head. My friends would see this and I would pass out and have these horrible you know, daydreams of committing violent acts. And I really, at that point, I, I just consume more and more. I think when you're in psychosis, you don't know you're in psychosis. Were you, were you not scared by your psychosis? Look at these no, I wasn't scared. That's what was so horrible is that I just thought um, it was even given to me urinary incontinence. You would think that would be a wake up call, right? Like what the heck is going on? Uh, but if anything, I I really liked it. At some point, I remember I actually mountain bike. And that's a fun thing I like to do. It got to the point where I would bring my bike on a beautiful fall day and think I'm going to ride my bike. And I would show up and I would think I just want to dab. I would just want to dab it. I hated myself. And then I would just leave and not even go mountain biking and go dab at a friend's house. I think that my mind was basically hijacked and I felt no natural reward at all. It had to be from, again, the dopamine that flooded my brain from the high potency THC concentrates. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And even though you had these psychotic episodes, they didn't scare you enough.
1: Uh, No. And actually, if anything, I thought they were real. I thought that what I was believing eventually um, I wanted to harm people. I wanted to murder people. I thought that that people were not human. They were actually shape shifting reptilians. It sounds crazy. But I really thought that was true. And I was the only person who could save humanity. Again, if I had, if I could kill certain people, I could save humanity. So I understand when you had that young woman, I think it was California. She did a, probably a a hit a concentrate and killed her boyfriend and his dog. And I I feel like it does happen to people, but at the time I didn't want to quit using it. I did not want to quit using it.
0: And wow. How scary that is. You could think of that could have been you
1: absolutely and so i know i hear about bizarre behavior i'm not surprised i know what it does and i'm so lucky that i at least stopped and could then recover because my mind was really a mess i didn't have any short-term memory i was also heavy metal poisoned that's a part of it and and
0: that is you i saw that you talked about that that's a very difficult medical diagnosis
1: to make tell what were your symptoms and how were you diagnosed well, what happened was when I eventually, by the way, I quit my job as a bud tender. Once I found out about the moldy contamination, I actually had talked to the cultivator and found the whole truth. And I have to say it was cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, I was told this is the best of the best medical marijuana. On the other hand, I'm thinking, why? Why does the marijuana look like this? I'm I'm, I'm weighing it. I'm feeling it. It doesn't look right. But I, I did not... Uh, I started to not trust my marijuana corporation, but I trusted the state to regulate it. And that was my problem. That was the big problem. Right. So, um, well, tell
0: us about your heavy metal poisoning and then we'll talk about whether you were a whistleblower.
1: Oh, yes. So actually what I was, um, I, I trusted the state and what happened was I again, had a lot of serious, I was having tetany, spasms in my legs. Um, again, I'm talking about the neurological problems. I had numbness in my legs. I didn't know what was going on. So I did quit my job, which is good. And I quit consuming it. And then I started reading online about, um, Smithsonian Magazine in 2015 wrote about how medical marijuana can have heavy metals in it. And I got so afraid. I thought, I know that they're, it's being grown and it's contaminated, but I really started to worry because I had actually had a patient with heavy metal poisoning uh, when I was a physical therapist. So I thought, what could be the worst thing? I better get checked. So I actually went through, it was an intense, um, I had to go see an osteopath. And again, I had the um, IV and the, the collation to draw out the heavy metals. Did you get like five. a, did you get a blood test that showed that? Cause that's very hard to obtain. I should have done the blood test. What happened was I didn't want the blood test. I was convinced actually that there was a certain heavy metal in my body, which is why I wanted all of them Um, tested. I tested high for lead, like really high. Also for nickel, which our dispensary, uh, the excuse me, our state doesn't test for cadmium. But what really, really. What blew my mind is that thallium was in my system and it was elevated. So where did you go to get these blood tests? Because I think the usual patients, if they come to the emergency department, I usually don't do these kind of tests. They don't. I've had a friend go to the ER, same thing. Um, What I did was I researched it and I decided to have a urine test done. And it was a lot. I drove two and a half hours to Maine and had an IV and I was peeing like for two hours in the office with the IV. And then they gave me my urine container and say, keep peeing two hours more going home. And then I sent it off. And I've had many doctors, when I went to see a, a primary care physician, they knew nothing about heavy metals. Every doctor I've talked to says they don't know anything about it. And I feel bad because I at least was able to stop having heavy metal poisoning, which could lead to cancer. There's some very serious problems with, with, um, with lead poisoning. Wow. In the other You'd think metals. that
0: that's another consumer uh, industry. People who do heavy metal testing, they can, uh, you know, to figure out. <laughs> uh, but because well, we, you're that. right, we don't do them in the hospital. Uh, and very rare events. We, we had one lady who keep coming in with weird symptoms, losing her hair, losing weight. Nobody could figure out why. All her tests repeatedly were normal. And it was actually her husband who was poisoning her. Um, was it thallium? Uh, it no? wasn't thallium. And I forgot what what heavy metal it was that he was putting in her food. Um, but it was a big deal. I mean, FBI Absolutely. came in, you know, like, uh, this, it was, a uh, we had like, you know, people from Washington, D.C. come to the, you know, the hospital, start looking around, uh, because the, the chelating agents, some of them are, are radioactive. So it's like, why is this hospital buy, you know, trying to purchase these things? So it, it um, it was an interesting case, but, uh, uh so you had that you know um discovery and you quit and when you quit you're an injured worker i mean i'm wondering if osha cared about uh you know uh did you file a work comp claim were you a whistleblower
1: i did multiple things i did file for unemployment because i i thought that would be something given i had all this document i have extensive documentation on this the sad thing is they would not set a precedent by saying there was an injured cannabis worker in my state though there's been a death in my state lorna mcmurray was a uh, cultivator actually she was um in the um Making the concentrate, and she had an asthma attack. She had two, and the second one put her in the ICU for three days and killed her. This is a twenty seven year old. i did I did, in fact report it to OSHA, and OSHA did nothing for a year. And eventually i I, I had a little bit of publicity with a, a cannabis activist, but they just did a lame report. They could not go in. OSHA told me their hands were tied. I was told, why was told is that? that
0: why, they phone. come into my dental my husband's dental office just because he's not, you know, having the right, you know, CPR equipment or whatever, like they're all over you. Um, Anybody who has a business, any small business owner knows those
1: regulations. How
0: is the cannabis industry so protected?
1: I don't know if it's just, again, I I look at the regulators. I think that there could be complacency, um, incompetence and corruption. I mean, I, I don't know how else to explain why what's happening is happening. I think there's a lot of incompetence going on. How did you recover? I mean,
0: you were at this point you were using marijuana and high potency for many years. Um, quitting's not easy. How how did you manage? Did, and you you mentioned like even when you were in jail, you had cravings from it. Now at this point, with even higher potency, how did how did you quit? And did you have cravings, or did
1: you replace that with something else, or how did you do that? Well, when I, again, I, I, when I discovered the contamination, I did quit for some time. And what happened was I was striving and I have documentation. I have I've documented um, letters I sent to the federal government, to the state government. And my first relapse was when I call, I decided to call the DEA. And I thought I got to report the contamination. And I called the DEA. And it really took a lot for me to do that. Because, again, I had been arrested for marijuana. I still at that point I didn't want to, you know, be someone, you know, stopping people from having marijuana, but when I called the DEA about three months after I quit the dispensary and had not used marijuana, they did not care at all. They didn't even want to, I said, don't you want my name? They're like, no, and that caused me to have my first relapse, but when I did, in fact, consume just flour, I swore off the concentrates. I had a bad effect. I would just feel that weird tingling in my legs, and I would get paranoid, and um, I would pass out, I, like I would take the lowest dose imaginable, Dr. Lev. I'm talking a small amount and pass out for hours. And my friends were like, well, what's up with that? And so I, then I think, no, I, I can't consume it. And then I had actually took Dr. Paula Gordon's class on the harms of marijuana. And again, I wanted to stop. I thought, this is not healthy at all. I need to stop. And if I can't stop, then that really shows me there's a problem. Um, but eventually I sought a higher power. And that, when you have, a, a, again, when you have a spirituality where you don't need a drug to feel good, you feel good because of just that connection you have with uh, the life force. That's really the, the best way to live. From my uh, from what happened to me, and so I sought the higher power, and I actually will have uh, four years, um, so actually five years, sobriety in not, in um, November.
0: Wow! Congratulations to you! and And how do you feel? How do you feel uh, health wise and mental health wise?
1: I feel really good in a way. I, I for a while it's sad. I, I did have the cravings, and I did want it to work for me, but now I again I had this again spiritual. Uh, I guess, epiphany where I I do not like marijuana. I don't crave marijuana. I actually get nauseous. I was walking an 85-year-old patient because I'm a physical therapist down the street in Amherst and there was a young student smoking a big blunt. And I thought, this is so wrong. Like This is just making me mad. Um, But the good thing is you can't overcome it. I'm the person where, again, to this day, people still wonder, well, why are you doing this? What was why don't you just go back to it? But you just can't go back to something that was that harmful for my mind. It really almost I almost killed myself. And that actually people have and I've read about sometimes the suicides happen after you stop consuming it, because I know that point where you feel like you'll never feel any joy again.
0: Right. Or guilty or. Whatever hole you had in your heart that you were filling with drugs is now raw and open, not covered up. So that, that, you know, that's when the depression actually uh, emerges. Um, So, all right, so you decide to quit. you were able to do that. You saw a higher power. You reported to different agencies. They didn't care. Um, and now you're speaking out. Um, do, are you threatened by by taking that bold move? Because again, marijuana is people's religion, and you're you're speaking out against that religion. That that evokes a lot of emotion.
1: The weird thing is, I feel like I know people who have been. Um you know, either attacked on social media. I never have been, and I don't know why. I don't know why. I was in the movie Smokescreen. I thought, well, can't people see it? I was just up there in New Hampshire against, uh, testifying against uh, commercialization, and there were some people from Massachusetts, some cannabis activists up there. I thought, surely they're going to see this happen. And I'm at the point where I don't even care, because if you know the truth, then you can't really go along with a, a lie and it is a it what I feel has happened is that the American people have been lied to about this. It it is not the drug people think it is. What a
0: and and people think, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. People think when you talk about medicine, I've had, you know, even the rabbis say, well it's medicine. Don't you recommend medicine? It's like, but it's not medicine. You were duped uh um by that. There are standards that we have um, for any other medicine in the world, except for this, you know, um, product and that we're not keeping.
1: I think Keith Stroop said it really well. I didn't know this again because I was, I bought the drug propaganda, which was not only just marijuana, but that was the gateway to, again, psychedelics thinking, oh, the government has it wrong. And it's really, these drugs can cause us to have that connection uh, with, you know, the universe. And there's a big uh, conspiracy to stop people from having this knowledge. And that's unfortunately what I'm seeing now. I think that right now we're at a dangerous time where people, I, I, I can't even believe we're talking about, again, but the potential to have like psychedelic dispensaries. I listened to this uh, podcast called The Coffee House and
0: they're they're a group of people who do podcasts promoting marijuana. Uh, And what intrigued me about this one episode is they were absolutely flabbergasted, you know, jaw opening, and they could not believe that this cannabis uh, industry, 605 cannabis, also known as Badlands, Uh, in South Dakota was being sued, and the Department of Health of South Dakota was being sued for various violations um, that these, you know, again, these marijuana religious uh, folks who promote marijuana were Aghast that these industries were adding delta eight and terpenes to the cannabis and altering the labeling, including these products, and uh, you know, not supervising the food establishment, not having security cameras. I mean, people. Um, I think most people are good, and they believe that you know businesses should be honest, and they don't. You know, when they're confronted with the data that this is not happening, they're shocked.
1: You know, why should we trust the corporations? I mean, we know what they do. And when I went into this industry, I didn't think it was a corporate thing. I thought it was this, again, plant, a plant that I thought was a natural plant. And what they've done is it's all about greed. That's the thing. It's all about I didn't understand the deception and the harm and how they're willing to, again, harm people for money. That goes against my values. And people should be shocked. And But the thing is, in California, they were starting to implement after having no standards for lab testing. They then were having a, a bargain basement sale of potentially heavy metal poison, pesticide poison, marijuana. And then there were people lining up around the block for it. So even when you alert them and say, look, this has not been tested for heavy metals or pesticide, It's bottom, you know, it's amazing you're allowed to do that. If you have expired milk,
0: you know, at the grocery store, they can't just do a a sale. Here's some, you know, sour milk that everybody could buy. We're going to have it half off now. No, you, you throw
1: it out. The thing is, I didn't understand. I really thought there was going to be regulation for it. But and I didn't understand about the high potency it's just what I'm scared of is that I started off at 2% THC as a 16 year old. I still, you know, I was arrested and, you know, went to jail, but I managed to you know go to college. And I'm just thinking of those people, those young people who try that high potency. I tried 2% THC. What happens to the 90% THC that goes in their brain and th- their brains are forming until 25.
0: Right. You, you learned all the right things, right. And your do- so your dopamine need is more and more. Um And um, yeah, that, that is uh, definitely very sad. Uh, knowing what you know now about the industry, what can you tell us that the public needs to know?
1: From the being behind, the scenes, like behind the scenes?
0: Tell us behind the
1: scenes. Keith Stroop of Normal said, we need to use medical marijuana as a red herring to give marijuana a good name. He said that. That was the game plan. What we're witnessing is another addiction for profit industry. I find it very interesting that you had tobacco taking off and you had the corporate tobacco uh, corporations they were lying to Congress, and they are, again, it's all a big lie. They are lying about the harms. It's all about the money. That's what's happening. It's not about the plant. It's not about It's not about really helping people. And I know that there's some people convinced that, oh, but so-and-so grows it well and this or that. I think it's too dangerous. I think it's very dangerous to have allowed this, to have the... What would you set, tell the sixteen-year-old A- A- Anne
0: back in you know high school when you thought, wait, I'm feeling better with this? What about the people who say, well, there's millions of people around the world who feel better just like little Anne did when she was sixteen years old?
1: But looking back, did I really feel better? You know what I mean? I, I think that you're not really coping with life if you're on drugs. You're just not. That's the bottom line, and. I guess that we are a nation, I get, think, of, of drug users. I think we are one of the greatest drug-using nations on the planet, and that's just really sad. I, I think that people have to just realize, you know, what they're doing is harmful, and it's not what people think. It's not what people think it is. Yeah.
0: Well, that's that's an important message. Thank you um, for sharing that, for taking us behind the scenes um, to know about what's happening in the industry. I want to say thank you to Natalie Andrade, who works with youth and teaches prevention. I think her students would love to hear this episode um, and learn what happens behind the scenes. And uh, thank you, Anne Hassel, for your bravery, your speaking up, your fascinating story. And I wish you the best of health, uh, physical health, uh, emotional health, um, you know, continued success with your recovery. Um, Your message is so important um, and, and what we need to hear.
1: Well, thank you for having me. And I think the greatest thing I've learned is not, I won't witness perhaps the effect I have, but just putting it out there is going to produce an effect. Thank you for listening to High Truths
0: on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor, A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit Isaac1.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host. Dr. Onit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.